This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. History books preserve the stories of our past so that they can be told for generations to come. Museums care for artifacts of long-lost eras so that we can marvel at and learn from their lessons. But it's in the timeless sanctuaries of graveyards and cemeteries where history will live forever. Obviously, there's an irony to that statement, considering cemeteries and graveyards aren't exactly known for their life. But take a stroll through any of the Cape Fear region's historic burial grounds, and you will see the lives and histories of its people, etched in stone and dating back to its development, through its struggles for independence and its fight for national unity. We've covered a lot of stories on this podcast over the past 49 episodes, but most of them have one thing in common— They end with a body in a grave. It's the natural end to each of our stories. But just because it puts a period on history doesn't mean that it can't be revisited or reflected upon. That is, after all, the duty of cemeteries and graveyards. To provide someone with a place to refresh the memories of their loved ones. And from which, historians trace the stories of local residents, big and small. They offer a quiet ambiance that has, over time, been co-opted by ghost stories and horror movies on the big screen. And yet, many of the historic cemeteries of the Cape Fear were actually built as welcoming retreats from the outside world. As parks and gardens intended to ease the mind and nurture the bond between the living and the dead. It's a mission that these burial grounds still serve, a century or more after their first eternal residence went into the ground. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, we're celebrating our 50th episode, and we're doing so by taking a look at history from the point at which most of our stories end. In a poll posted on the Cape Fear Unearthed Facebook page, I asked listeners to choose what we covered for this milestone episode. And they responded with resounding enthusiasm for one topic. The Cape Fear region is home to some truly extraordinary cemeteries and graveyards that hold the stories of the past in every marker and mausoleum. Throughout this episode, we'll touch on the origins of and notable figures buried within places like Oakdale Cemetery, Old Smithfield Burying Ground, 
Bellevue Cemetery, Pine Forest Cemetery, St. James Episcopal Church Graveyard, and the burying ground around St. Philip's Church at Brunswick Town. We won't cover every historic burial ground in the region, because many of them have been lost to time and progress, or are private family plots tucked away from public access. The ones we're going to discuss are the historic burial sites still accessible today. Oh, and one more thing before we get underway. I want to offer a little disclaimer on something that I learned when I first started this show. Do you know the difference between a graveyard and a cemetery? Well, a graveyard is attached to a church and often reserved for the church's members, while a cemetery is a freestanding burial ground. As always, I'll share with you these stories as they have been passed down through history and told through legend. And then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And this week's guest is Eric Kozen, the superintendent of Oakdale Cemetery, who joins me to talk about the cemetery's unique history and how cultural shifts have changed our attitudes towards them over time. So sit back and settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we take a stroll through the past in the historic cemeteries and graveyards of southeastern North Carolina. Burial grounds are some of the only remaining artifacts left behind by the Cape Fear Indians that once inhabited this region. The uncovered cold morning burial site near the current Echo Farms development in Wilmington was the final resting place of more than a dozen adults and children from the tribe, whose history has largely been lost to time. They were buried together atop a sandy ridge, as was the custom for the Suin tribe with whom they are most closely associated. The mere survival of the site is further evidence that even before the region was developed by European settlers, its residents chose culturally and environmentally important sites to lay their loved ones to rest. It mattered where these people were buried, and it's a universal human mindset that still survives today. The first burying ground for settlers in the region would have almost certainly been at Charlestown in modern-day Brunswick County the first attempt to establish a permanent local settlement in 1664. It would falter within three years, but for a period, families lived off this land and made a go at staking their claim on an uncharted chunk of the New World, before ultimately clashing with local Native American tribes. Although no burial sites for Charlestown settlers have ever been found, it stands to reason that they existed at some point. But to see the remnants of what is likely the oldest surviving burial ground in the region, you only have to travel a few miles south to Brunswick Town, the first successful settlement in the Cape Fear. There, graves line the land around St. Philip's Church, which was completed in the 1760s. Only a handful of markers and ornamental raised caskets are visible above the ground today, still inscribed with the stories of people like William Dry, 
Alfred Moore, and Benjamin Smith, all of whom were among the founding generations of this region. The dozen or so markers are cracked from Civil War shells and beaten down by the elements, but they aren't the first to be buried at the church. Royal Governor Arthur Dobbs died in 1765 in Brunswick Town and was buried inside the church underneath what would have been the pulpit. Eleven other unknown persons were eventually buried with him. If you look closely at the ground around the church, you can still see the broken remnants of other headstones, sanded down by time and war, but still marking the memory of the people buried beneath them. Site manager Jim McKee said that there are dozens of graves underneath your feet as you walk around the church. They just weren't lucky enough to survive two centuries of coastal climate and conflict. One extraordinary story that links Brunswick Town's burial ground to that of the old Smithville burying ground in Southport lies with Benjamin Smith, a Revolutionary War colonel and former governor of North Carolina. Smith died in 1826 in debt, at a time when debt collectors could claim your body as final payment in the event of your death. But to protect his last earthly vestige, his friends secretly buried him in an unmarked grave in Smithville, the town he founded that would become Southport. It defied his last wish, which was to be buried with his wife Sarah at Brunswick Town, where they lived. But it protected his body for nearly two decades, until Joseph Gardner Swift inquired about where his old friend was buried. It wasn't until 1842 that Smith was dug up, identified only by the bullet still lodged in his hip from a duel decades earlier, and relocated to Brunswick Town to be reunited with his wife, on top of whom he was buried. He remains eternally entombed at Brunswick Town, right outside St. Philip's Church, but he also has a memorial marker at Old Smithville Burying Ground. That cemetery dates back to 1792, when the site was officially designated a burying ground on the initial town map that Smith himself signed off on. It's rumored that burials were conducted on the site all the way back to 1745, when Fort Johnston was being constructed just a few blocks away. That fort's commander, General Robert Howe, is memorialized with a marker right next to Smith's. The oldest still-standing grave marker in the burying ground is dated 1804 and doesn't actually belong to a resident. David Hicks died in Smithville after commanding the Neptune, a ship from his home state of Rhode Island. His marker is made of a dark slate, the only one like it in the grounds. The site's other notable grave is a pillar to the memory of ten pilots, killed in two tragic shipwrecks, including the Mary Kay Sprunt in 1877. Their shared monument reads, The winds and the sea sing their requiem, and shall forevermore. Old Smithfield Burying Ground is an oasis to the past in the heart of Southport that's shaded by massive trees strung with Spanish moss and a constant shower of leaves 
no matter the season. It was designed as a place of communion with the dead, as were the burial grounds that now hold some of Wilmington's most noted figures. The oldest burial ground in downtown Wilmington is the graveyard at St. James Episcopal Church, first opened in 1839. Many of its weather-worn, moss-stained graves date back to figures who were alive to see the Revolutionary War sweep through Wilmington. Cornelius Harnett, the famed North Carolina delegate to the Continental Congress who died after being captured by the British in 1781, is buried in the northwest corner, just feet from the Market Street Monument in his honor. Even with a towering figure within its gates, St. James's graveyard is still best known for a ghostly legend. It's said that Samuel Jocelyn was buried alive somewhere near the cemetery in 1810, and was only discovered after he appeared as an apparition to his best friend Alexander Hostler, begging to be saved. The story goes that Hostler did dig up his friend, finding that he had been mistakenly pronounced dead after a fall, only to suffocate in his coffin. That grave, however, was not marked and has never been located. The last burial in St. James's graveyard was in 1850, when private burials within the city limits were outlawed. In the decade prior to the Civil War, Wilmington had grown to become the most populous city in the state, thanks to the completion of the Wilmington-Weldon Railroad. By then, it was home to some 10,000 residents. With its population swelling, the city's public and private burial plots were dramatically dwindling, motivating a group of proprietors to purchase 65 acres of land east of Burnt Mill Creek in 1852, on which they would establish the state's first rural cemetery. It was the city cemetery, but from the beginning, it was known in the community simply as Oakdale. We've told lots of stories about the residents of Oakdale Cemetery since the beginning of this podcast. Rose Greenhow, the Confederate spy who drowned off Fort Fisher in 1862. William Ellerbrock, the selfless volunteer fireman who died alongside his faithful dog, Boss, in an 1880 fire. Nancy Martin, the young woman encased in a barrel of rum after supposedly dying at sea in 1856. And little Annie Derosette, the first person interred in the cemetery on February 5th, 1855, at the young age of six. In a tragic twist, she was the daughter of the Cemetery Corporation's first president. Oakdale also holds the graves of renowned local historians like James Sprunt and Louis T. Moore. And there's plenty of others that we haven't even mentioned on this show before, including David Brinkley, the celebrated television journalist, Rachel Lohman, a respected World War I nurse, and Henry Bacon, the architect behind the Lincoln Memorial. In relatively short order, the cemetery would become an essential part of how the city handled its dead in the mid-1800s. Early on, Wilmington officials made a deal with the cemetery 
to bury soldiers from the Civil War within its grounds. In the fall of 1862, it would unexpectedly become the epicenter of burials for the victims of the yellow fever epidemic, hundreds of whom were buried in a public plot near the center of the historic section. By the end of the war, the cemetery held the bodies of Confederate and Union soldiers alike. But the deep wounds of that divide didn't even allow for peace and death, as the Union soldiers were disinterred and moved to the Wilmington National Cemetery, and the Confederate soldiers were moved to a designated plot at Oakdale, on top of which a Confederate monument was erected in 1872. Oakdale isn't just a cemetery, though. Over time, more cities had sought out architects and designers to build cemeteries that could also have recreational purposes, with plenty of walking paths, vegetation, and breathing room from the bustle of urban areas. They weren't too far from downtown sectors, but they were far enough to be out of sight. After the war, as the country began to breathe again and get back to some sense of normalcy, it also began to look at places like Oakdale as a way to take a stroll and take in some fresh air. Current Oakdale Superintendent Eric Cozen, who you'll hear from later in this episode, said cemeteries like Oakdale were as much for the living as they were for the dead. Families wanted to be part of it. Dozens of graves would be relocated to Oakdale in the decades after it opened, giving the site grave markers that actually predate the cemetery itself. Oakdale would get a chapel in 1871, and even a few small summer homes around the property. A stone lodge similar in appearance to the new Hanover County Courthouse in downtown Wilmington was also built on the site, near the old entrance toward which the Confederate monument faces. In time, Oakdale became one of the most visited and beloved places in Wilmington, and each spring it was ripe with a colorful rainbow of flowers and landscaping and it still is today. But as Wilmington moved through the 20th century, Oakdale began to burst at the seams, resulting in a need for an annex, opened in 1945, and a memorial garden in 1950. A live oak section was also opened just outside the main gates on the east side of the cemetery. And as you pass through its gates, you'll notice that the stone posts that greet you are from the cemetery's original entrance. But those additions were of more modern designs, with restrictions on grave marker height to match the Lawn Park cemeteries that were custom of the time. Oakdale, in so many ways, is a historic snapshot of the past as soon as you cross its threshold. But it was not accessible to everyone in the community. Bellevue Cemetery, just a few blocks away, was incorporated in 1876 from a 15-acre Civil War battery known as Green's Battery. It was the Working Man's Cemetery and contains the family plots and residents of, quote, more moderate means, as its historic plaque reads. Today, it's maintained by a small crew of volunteers who clip its hedges and mow its grass each weekend with the help of community service workers. 
situated directly between Oakdale and Bellevue, is the city's post-Civil War cemetery answer to segregation, which was enforced even in death. In 1860, the city purchased 15 acres of land adjacent to Oakdale Cemetery to build an African-American cemetery, which was taken over by the black community and officially incorporated as Pine Forest Cemetery in 1871. Today, it cradles the stories of some of the most influential members of the black community, dating back to the Reconstruction. Among its notable residents are Dr. James Francis Schober, the first black licensed physician in North Carolina, George L. Mabson, the state's first black lawyer, James B. Dudley, the longtime president of what is now North Carolina A&T State University, and Mary Washington Howe, the president of Williston Graded School for more than 20 years, who you might remember we discussed in our Women's History episode. Members of the black community took pride in the cemetery as a respectful place to call their own even moving their ancestors from other cemeteries to be part of its legacy. Like its neighbors in Oakdale and Bellevue, Pine Forest and its sea of trees are often at the mercy of hurricanes that can level trunks and destroy grave markers. But they have all remained resolute in their purpose to protect history, even after the stories are written. In New Hanover County alone, There are nearly a hundred cemeteries and graveyards, from public to private, to huge acreage cemeteries and small backyard family plots. These eternal sites chart the rise of this region and the cultural changes that came with it. First, it was graveyards attached to churches that give a peek into the region's small beginnings, tied to tradition and religion. Then cemeteries rose along with the population and the need for more space to store the names and remains of the past. Too often, we rigidly frame burial grounds as places of finality and even something to be feared. But when you really think about it, isn't now the time to appreciate them as the capsules of the past and vessels of history that they are? especially while we're still among the living. Joining me now to talk further about cemeteries of the Cape Fear, cemeteries and graveyards of the Cape Fear, is Eric Cozen, the superintendent of Oakdale Cemetery, who has been on our show several times, and thank you for coming back, Eric. Absolute pleasure. So I want to start, uh, we get a lot of questions about Oakdale Cemetery specifically because we've told a lot of stories on the show about some of the people who are buried here. And I wanted to dig just a little bit further into the history of Oakdale and talk a little bit about why it's so important to the Wilmington community because it comes at a really important moment of growth in Wilmington. Uh, Wilmington's becoming a very populous city. There are graveyards here and there, but what is happening when they are starting to look at building something like Oakdale Cemetery here in Wilmington? Well, there had to have been a reason, a rhyme and reason, for why Oakdale kind of came to be. 
I still don't know what that answer is. I don't know what that rhyme is, and I don't know what that reason is. Even as I've done my research um, through the newspapers and so forth, I've never been able to kind of put my finger on it. Um, even though other cities uh, up north, being in Virginia and Richmond, um, you've got New England where you've got New York, um, Connecticut, and so forth, they were already in the process of already developing or they've just developed cemeteries for their uh, municipalities and their communities. So what is the significance or the difference between something like St. James in downtown Wilmington, the graveyard attached to the Episcopal Church, to what would become Oakdale? I mean, what is the difference or why was there a need to kind of change things up? Well, obviously the graveyard situation being associated with churches like the one at St. James um, all those were derived out of necessity. Um, those were also part of the old world thoughts. So when you have small towns and municipalities, um, there is, there are no needs for having a larger tract of land. So most of these graveyards that were attached to churches um, were sufficient for the population at the time. There's a huge push of population um, expansion that occurs in the 1800s as you know America was founded. And as soon as it became more developed and more industrialized, there was much more people that were wanting to come from Europe to America. So when you have that large population explosion, these graveyards um, that were attached to churches are definitely not suitable for this expansion of growth. Yeah. Well, and also, as you mentioned before when we were talking, they were also very close to these highly populous areas, and that was of concern to some people. Yeah, so... Then you have people that are dying of certain diseases and things of that nature where medicine was very much in its infantile stages. They didn't, they didn't even have stethoscopes at the time. So, um, but when people were, were passing away from certain diseases and so forth, there became this fear. And the fear was is that, you know, could these diseases be transferred from the dead to the living? And so with these graveyards having a close proximity, to the downtown populations, because where are the churches? They're downtown. Where these graveyards are associated to these churches. And so, you know, our population is walking past these churches or they're going to church on, you know, regular Sunday services and so forth. So they're within this close proximity. And so with cemeteries that were being developed, most of these cemeteries that were being developed were being developed anywhere from one to three miles outside the city limits. Okay. And that was to alleviate some of this fear of this transference of from the dead to the living, but not only that, but it also gave the cities and the communities much more expansive land to be able to bury many more people of the population that was growing. Well, because you also look at something like St. James Graveyard and the size of it. I mean, it's constricted over time as there's been more progress, but look at the size of that compared to what Oakdale even was when it first started. I mean, there's such a significant size difference that they had more room to to be out here. Very true. Um, because a lot of the churches downtown actually had graveyards associated with them. They're no longer. Mm-hmm. Most of those bodies were, were exhumed and brought here to Oakdale. Mm-hmm. Cause that happened over many, many years. I mean, even through how, I mean, how late were they moving bodies here to Oakdale? It seemed to me that the, the majority of the, uh, the movement that was coming out of these church graveyards to Oakdale was shortly after the Civil War. So anywhere from about 1875 to about the turn of the century, 1900, there was a lot of um, movement that was taking place. 
One of the cool things I think that came with it, though, was not only the, the bodies were being brought here, but their monuments came with them. Wow. And so we have a lot of monuments that are out here um, that when they did arrive, they predate the cemetery. Wow, that's kind of cool. I, and you've even showed me one before. We were walking out through the cemetery one day, and there was one, I think it was like 1836 or something like that. Yep. And that's a full two decades before this cemetery even had its first internment. Yeah, because um, just the design alone, um, you can pick those things out very simply that, you know, they're, they definitely predate the antebellum period. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the design of the cemetery. Uh, who was designing these kind of cemeteries for these larger scale burials? Well, a lot of times they would bring in um, surveyors or architects, especially landscape architects that were um, in the process of doing a lot of large design work for um, our state buildings and things of that nature. So um, they were pretty much acute of, of being able to develop land. What was the intention behind building Oakdale? I mean, because at that time, what was the attitude towards being out here a little outside of the city, being able to come see loved ones? I mean, it, it seems like Oakdale was built as more of almost a place of recreation or reflection. Well, that comes later. Okay. Uh, the obvious reason is that they were trying to find a tract of land that was close enough to the city, but also far enough in the same respect. Because, like I said, these these were being developed literally just on the outskirts of town. So they didn't want it too far away, but they wanted it close enough so that people could um, obviously use it for its its intended purposes, which is to bury their family members. Mm-hmm. So. But when they were designing these um, cemeteries, a lot of times that they were utilizing individuals that you know could create a beautiful oasis. And when they found this tract of land, some of the things that I have read um, is that when they found this property, they just knew that it was it was a beautiful piece of land, and very little of it had to be changed um, because of the topography and so forth. And so they they literally built the cemetery the way the land was. What do you mean by that? Well, we have a a roadway system that kind of comes in here. Most of our roads are not really straight. So in the older sections of the cemetery, they really just kind of went with the way the topography of the land was. So we have some sections in here which um, represent a circle because it was a knoll or something to that effect. There was this little hillside. So they did do a little bit of excavation when they built the roadways that the excess that they had done from that they took the spoil and placed it up within our cemetery lots and you don't that's one thing you just don't see in a lot of other cemeteries are raised lots and so you know that has a twofold situation one first we're at the coast where our water table is fairly high and so to mitigate the the water issue um, by raising the lots you were able to kind of you know steer yourself away from that also i think was the aesthetics you know, back then, people were two modes of transportation, either by foot or by horse. There were no cars. And so by horse, you're actually up by four or five feet. And so your perspective is a little bit different. And so just think of it as we drive through our, our neighborhoods, like Forest Hills or, or South Atlanta or something to that effect, you're literally going through a neighborhood. And that's what Oakdale is. It's like you're going into a neighborhood and was designed as such because... There are steps that are on just about every single lot that's out here. It has the last name on it. It's kind of like your little mailbox type type situation. But I just think that those aesthetics of those raised lots um, definitely probably played a, a role within the type of transportation. 
I've never even thought about coming out here, and that would have been the mode of transportation. Driving out here, I mean, not driving out here, but riding out here on a horse. Well, we used to have horse-drawn wagon tours out here. Oh, wow. And so when we were doing those several years ago, um, I had an aha moment. I got to see something from maybe that level of the 1800s if you were coming out in a little carriage <laughs> being pulled by a horse. Wow. That's, that's interesting to think about. I've been out here so many times, I've never even thought about it. I'm obviously not from that perspective, but that'd be an interesting way to look at things. Uh, so how did Oakdale change over time? It came at a very really pivotal moment for Wilmington, not only just a, a decade before the Civil War, but also it ends up becoming a very important spot for burials in the 1862 yellow fever epidemic. Um, a lot of the fatalities from the Civil War were buried here for a time, still are on the Confederate side. But what was the evolution of Oakdale beyond that and into the latter half of the 1800s and into the 1900s? Well, after the development, of course, we had these, these situations that you just mentioned in the Civil War um, and the yellow fever epidemic. But I think literally after the Civil War, it, that was the that was the pivotal moment for Oakdale. People really wanted to kind of get back out and get back out into nature. And so there was a clash that was taking place between the citizens and Obviously, for the obvious reason, Oakdale was here to bury um, your family members, your loved ones, and so forth. Then there were people that literally just wanted to get out of the city. They wanted to be able to um, get out of the, the sights, the smells of downtown, um, and get into something that's beautiful. Um, they had no place to escape. And so there, was a, there were recreational activities that were taking place. There were people that were coming out here. They were walking. They were courting. Um, they were relaxing. Some people call it loitering. Um, but they were just literally just enjoying the property um, and enjoying being outside within nature. And so some of the cemeteries, including Oakdale, um, at one point eliminated having people coming out here on a particular day, unless if you actually had a pass. Really? So there were passes that were provided to the lot owners that if you wanted to come out, and I believe it was on Sundays only, that if you wanted to enter the grounds, you had to have the pass. You were not able to enter into the grounds without um, that type of identification. And that was to keep people from coming in here, A, doing work, uh, but B, also just, you know, recreationally enjoying the property. And so I think when that, that really kind of hit home, the people that couldn't come in here kind of got a little bit upset. And I believe that's pretty much how our park system became born. Okay. So if you come into a cemetery and you remove all the monuments, what remains? The natural aesthetics. The grass, the trees, the, the plants. And what do we call that today? A park. <laughs> so you could see that born from here because, I mean, I imagine people probably now being restricted on a specific day to come out here. If you look at just older pictures of Oakdale, it's I'm not that it's not that it has lost any of it, but it's just really beautiful. I mean, think about what this place would have looked like when it wasn't surrounded by, you know, a huge chunk of the residential downtown district. I mean, this would have been very much a rural area. It's kind of fascinating to think about. It's very remote. And then, you know, like I said, when that clash occurred, 
rules and regulations changed. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of cemeteries, especially ones that I have visited, because whenever I go traveling, guess where I go? (laughs) I I am shocked to say cemeteries. (laughs) Visit cemetery. It's interesting to see how other cemeteries look at recreational activities. We pretty much allow anybody to come in here and do whatever. We allow people to come in here and jog. We allow people to come in here and walk. We allow people to come in here with their pets. Once they clean up after them, we even allow people to come in here and bicycle. Mm-hmm. For the longest time, bicycling was not allowed in Oakdale, hmm. including when I first got here in 2002. I don't like being the bad cop <laughs> and telling people, I'm sorry, but you can't come in here and bicycle because that's part of our rules and regulations. So we've relaxed a lot of those recreational activities because we want people to come in here and enjoy the property, but also be respectful of what its original intentions are. Mm-hmm. Well, in over time, cemeteries themselves began to look different than Oakdale did. I mean, and so Oakdale has that historic aesthetic of being in that kind of recreational place where today they do look different. I mean, you can see that even here at Oakdale at the Annex or the Memorial Gardens. They look different than the historic section. I mean, what's the relationship between the those sections of the cemetery now? So one of the great things that, that Wilmington has is Oakdale Cemetery, obviously. Yes. But with that being said, you are able to look at an evolution of how cemeteries have evolved over the past 160 plus years. Mm-hmm. You know, first starting out as this um, beautiful way to look at land and, and encompass that with monuments and being in a natural setting. Obviously back then, in the 1850s all the way up to the turn of the century, you know, their modes of, of caring for the property were, were very rudimentary. You know, they were minimal at best. Mm-hmm. And as time moved forward, um, inventions started coming together. I mean, think about it. What we do today at our homes is we mow the grass, we weed eat and trim and all this other stuff. Well, they were not afforded those tools back then. And so things kind of changed and evolved. And with those changes comes changes in thoughts to property and how it's being developed. So around the turn of the century, 1900, when mowers were were beginning to become invented, there became another era of cemeteries known as the Lawn Park Cemetery, where now the lawn area is the predominant feature where the monuments have now been dropped from, say, you know, in the antebellum period, they were anywhere from 15 to 20 feet high. Now they have squatted down to about four feet and basically just bear the last name and then as individuals and family members become buried within these lots, foot markers evolve mm-hmm. with just their names, their birth dates, and their death dates. Instead of individualized large markers, they made everything very simplistic um, and easily to maintain. Move forward about another 10, 15, 20 years, we have what we call memorial parks, which we all pretty much know Green Lawn Cemetery that's up on 17th and Shipyard. That's a perfect example. We have one as well in here. It's basically a large field. All the monuments are flat and flush to the ground, but that was for the ease of maintenance um, and so forth. So as things got better and were involved with uh, machinery, um, the evolution of these cemeteries and how to maintain them um, fell within the same situation. One thing I love about coming out to Oakdale is I feel like you can read the stories of the people here in the historic section because there are literal things written about them on their on their grave markers, um, which I think is something that obviously you don't get in something that's a little more modern, something like Green Lawn. But here, I think it 
as I said earlier in the episode, I think it really does help preserve the past in a really specific and valuable way. Um, and I imagine that you guys see that here too, because you're out there every day helping to preserve the actual markers. That's true. Yes, very much so. So what is the status of Oakdale now? How do you guys keep up a historic cemetery with different modes and different elements to it like that? This place has its challenges. <laughs> it means. does. Um, it's, it's not an easy place to maintain, but it's not a hard place to maintain either. Um, we do have a very minimal crew that's here that, um, that does maintain it, but you know, I've also opened up other avenues where um, I actually bring in individuals from the Community Service Work Program. We are a nonprofit um, organization. Way that cemeteries were originally established were done as a nonprofit organization. Um, we actually even have our own IRS code, which is a 501s. Excuse me, 501c13. Um, most people are identified with C3s, which are typical foundations and charitable organizations. But they did create um, a difference for us um, through the IRS but also as, a, as an organization. And so developing and, and maintaining these properties is, is always a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, but Oak Hill is kind of fun because it has this whimsical feel about itself in a natural setting. So don't think that you're gonna kind of come out here and see a golf course setting by any means. It's, it's a little rough around the edges from time to time, but I think people appreciate that because we have different flowers that are blooming at different times um, and so forth. And, you know, we care for this place to be done as, as in a natural situation versus, um, you know, something of a, a golf course or something to that effect. You're one of the premier places to see azaleas every spring. Azaleas are, are top for us <laughs> and as well as dogwoods as well. So yeah. we get a, a definite uptick in people that want to um, venture into Wilmington and see all the natural beauty. Well, and as we record this, as anyone can probably tell by audio quality, we're doing so because of quarantine, safe distances, stuff like that. Cemeteries are one of the few things that have remained open that people could go and venture into. And I think that, I don't know, it almost seems like it returns some of the people who may have not known Oakdale's original intention to have that relationship between the cemetery and nature to really come and appreciate something like Oakdale. Our gates are open. That was one of the things that we kind of teetered with is do we close the gates or do we leave them open? Um, people do need a place to kind of go to. A lot of people know this place and they come to enjoy it for its peace and its serenity. And we still get those same people every single day sometimes. Some people I can set my watch to. Um, but we, we absolutely embrace people continuing to come out here, maybe finding something new. I can tell you this, that most people that come here for the very first time when they leave out of here, usually the one word that will come out of their mouth will be, wow, that they did not know this place even existed. And thinking that they may come in here for 10 or 15 minutes, the next thing you know, two hours has passed. Oh, yeah. You lose time here in a good way. Yes. In a very good way. It's not like a Vegas casino where they black out the windows. You get to really feel where you are when you're at Oakdale. 
No, definitely. <laughs> um, I, I agree with that. I said that on a tour that I hosted here a couple weeks ago, and I've said this to you many times, that every time I come out here looking for a story for the podcast or for the paper, I find another grave that I take a picture of and remind myself that I want to go back and look at the story for that one, or I'll go to a different part of the grave that I haven't gone back to, or the cemetery that I haven't gone back to in a while. And um, you can easily get lost in here just kind of looking around and looking that it just seems like it's it just never ends and yet you can see the the whole shape of it and i just like that when i come out here i feel like i can see the history i've been here 18 years and i still find something new that i've never seen before and i've walked almost every single square inch out here Mm -hmm. and i'm just um there is so much to read there's so much to see um People need to put their phones away, put them in your pocket, and literally come out here and enjoy this place. It is something to be seen. Absolutely. And you guys do, you know, in a normal time when we're not under quarantine and stuff like that, you guys do tours on a monthly basis. And then you do projects throughout the year with um, groups like Eagle Scouts to put uh, flags on the veterans that are buried here for multiple wars. And also you guys uh, retire American flags every year, correct? Yeah, so I've done a lot of different um, situations to invite the public to have them experience Oakdale in one form or fashion. Obviously, the tours, we started those about uh, about 10 or 15 years ago now, since in about 2006 is when we started doing our tours. Um, and that was literally a way to invite the public in here and learn some of the history about Wilmington. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't not only learning the history of Wilmington, but it was also to experience Oakdale firsthand. I do a lot of public speaking where I can go to um, an organization such as, let's say, a garden club or a rotary club or something to that effect and do slide presentations. Those are good, but it's not the same essence as actually when you walk through the gates. And I always try to invite these groups to do a field trip because when you come out here, the sights, the smells, the sounds literally just embrace you um, from the minute that you're in here until you leave. Some of the other... Um, opportunities that I do, I, I try to work a lot with children and kids. Um, so I definitely do a lot of Eagle Scout projects, work with the Boy Scouts. Um, I actually do work with a lot of garden clubs that come in here as well. Um, so I always have people that are very inviting to donate um, time or efforts or something to the effect. Um, so that way it, it kind of continues the, the traditions of what Oakdale was originally founded for. Well, and I know that you've, you've told me before that working with kids is also about establishing earlier that relationship with younger kids and historic places like this because it's their generations that are going to keep it going. We don't teach them now. They won't learn it. Exactly. Um, well, I would encourage, as Eric just said, everyone to come see Oakdale. I mean, we can talk about it on this podcast as we have before and we did in this episode, but... I mean, it's it's probably my favorite place in Wilmington. I come out here all the time. Eric sees my car drive through here yes, multiple times a week, and uh, but I think it's a it's it's a really good place to experience for yourself. We can, like I said, we can talk about it, we can write about it. Um, but the gates are open eight to five every day. Um, and uh, and there's so many other uh, graveyards and cemeteries that we've talked about in the episode that you can also go visit. But I was serious at the beginning of the episode when I said that this is really a place where history does kind of live and, and you get to experience it if you really just go out and, and do it for yourself. So, uh, Eric, it's always a pleasure. And we're actually filming at Oakdale, which is a completely different new thing for the podcast. So uh, thanks for thanks for letting me come to you this time. Excellent. My pleasure. 
That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and the history of this region's historic cemeteries and graveyards. Thank you so much for joining me. Due to the shutdown surrounding the coronavirus, this podcast will be releasing episodes every few weeks. So be sure to check back in early May for our special episode tied to the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. Until then, be sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode and all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Kate Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every week. In it, I include links to every new episode and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research. All delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or on Twitter by following me at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth. Unearthed.